welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Bill W. I'm an Episcopal priest, uh, and I'm also in uh, long-term recovery uh, from alcoholism and a number of other things. Uh, The purpose of these podcasts is basically to drill down a little deeper into the history of AA, the psychology behind it, the spirituality that supports it, and uh, kind of intended for for those who, uh, who, who want something more and just slogans and meetings and that kind of thing. So uh, if you're that kind of person, uh, we welcome you. Uh, and if you're not, uh, become that kind of person. <laughs> we all start off where we are. I encourage you to visit our website. It's titled Two Way Prayer. And uh, while you are there, please sign up for the newsletter and learn about that very unique form of prayer and meditation that was practiced in the Pioneer Program and somehow got lost along the way. Also want to thank our donors who uh, keep the lights on here. Couldn't do this uh, work without them. And uh, remind you that the podcasts are now on YouTube. The channel is called Two Way Prayer. So uh, if that's more convenient for you, uh, they, they tend to go up about two or three days after the podcast do, uh, but uh, they should be there. So uh, pay that a visit. Our present series is titled Eckhart Tolle and the Power of Now. Some people say Tolle. Uh, I looked it up and it's supposed to be tall, but I don't know. Eckhart T to us uh, will get Eckhart in the program and and make it easier on all of us. And my guest to to guide us on the inner journey is Dr. Bruce P. Uh, Dr. Bruce is a clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and a mindfulness teacher living out in Southern California. He got his PhD from Duquesne, teaches in the Department of Religion and Spirituality at Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Bruce uh, focuses on contemporary spiritual writers that include Eckhart Tolle. I've listed his contact information in the show notes, so if you want to send him a note, please feel free to do so. So welcome back, Dr. Bruce. It's, uh, It's been really informative and helpful uh, to have you doing this series. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Father Bill. Yeah, I appreciate it. And many of our listeners have uh, have responded as well. So you're, you're striking a note. And I, I should mention uh, that uh, you're also active uh, for many years in adult children of alcoholics. When I went into ACA, they have a laundry list of ACA traits. And uh, I just saw that so many of those traits were things that I experienced that were kind of key features of my personality. So that was helpful. Mm -hmm. But then the most helpful thing was uh, once I understood that these habits, low self-esteem, people pleasing, fear of authority figures, harsh, terrible, inner critical voice, uh, an egoic need to be greater than I was, um, approval seeking, then I began to see them in my experience. And so what the 12 steps uh, helped me, especially with the 10th step, was to be vigilant to see how these traits would pop up in my experience. And then with the awareness that I would engage in one of these repetitive patterns, such as putting others first to my own detriment, mm-hmm. I could check myself in the act and change course. It took a while to do that, and I still struggle with that because these traits are, you know, deeply ingrained. But you know, awareness is the greatest uh, agent of change, and so it really helped me understand and accept that my personality had these characteristics, 
that I could relate to them in a different way and become more effective. So it really emphasizes um, having this compassionate, loving relationship with yourself. And one of my core features in ACA was just the opposite, a hostile, punitive, demanding, uh, almost truculent nature towards myself. So that with the help of my higher power gave me the ability to have compassion for my shortcoming and communicate with myself in a more loving and compassionate way. Uh, and that made the difference. And um, so that's what I got out of ACA. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. I think many people in other 12-step programs uh, suffer some of those same uh, traits and experiences and, and aren't getting them resolved. And it's very important that we go back to, uh, oftentimes to our childhood and uh, repair some of the damage that, that was done there. So uh, good for you. Uh, another thing I wanted to compliment you on is uh, most psychologists get it trained out of them doing any uh, self-revelation. And I want to, you've, you've done a very nice job of telling people where you are. And that's, uh, that's really uh, uh, unusual and, uh, and appreciated. So good well, for you. you. Know it's interesting. When I was just a little Bruce, and taking <laughs> I took as a freshman in college, I came up this uh, wonderful book by Sidney Girard, a uh, psychologist uh, about uh, the art of self-disclosure. And he talked about how what a powerful and necessary thing it was is to be self-revealing. And um, in my clinical training, I got a lot of flack for being self-revealing because you know, therapists aren't, aren't supposed to do that. But I find uh, in my work that it, you know, we're in this together. We're suffering from universal things. And I think yes. that that uh, that it just sets up a better climate for healing. Yeah, good for you. Uh, I couldn't agree with you. Couldn't agree more. Uh, if you guys have uh, followed the series, you know that we've... Uh, kind of settled into a nice pattern for each episode. I asked uh, Dr. Bruce to send me a number of quotes from Eckhart Tolle uh, on the subject that we're discussing. And then I asked him to comment uh, a little more deeply on each one of them. Makes my job a lot easier. And for that, I thank you, Dr. Bruce. <laughs> so let's go ahead and uh, we'll get started. Uh, and Eckhart uh, starts us off with this. Unless and until you access the frequency of presence, all relationships and particularly intimate relationships are deeply flawed and dysfunctional. Help us with that one, Dr. Bruce. So for me, what this means is presence is being able to be with someone in a way where you're not thinking and uh, kind of distorting your perceptions of them by having a lot of mind stuff and commentary running through your mind. So when you're present, you really open to see the person as they really are rather than how you're evaluating them. The mind naturally wants to evaluate, but when you're practicing presence, which is practicing the awareness of experience without thought, what appears is more the simplicity and kind of like the virgin manifestation of who the other person is. People in relationships get in a lot of dysfunction 
when they start having stories about the other, evaluations of the other, you're just this way, and they begin to see each other uh, kind of in a mental, emotional filter that a lot of times obscures kind of the, the essence of who the other person is. Uh, so unless you can just be there as an open field of loving attention without a lot of mental, emotional overlay, what's coming from the other person, uh, unless you have that freshness, that kind of virgin perception of the other, a lot of that emotional judgment stuff is going to come in and create distance where it doesn't have to be there. So mm -hmm. it's a difficult gig to have to be awake. Eckhart Tolle says that whenever you're around someone, especially someone you have a lot of history with, your task is to really practice the presence of God, practice the presence of uh, uh, being present, paying attention to your body uh, so that you're not contaminating the relationship with a lot of perceptions, thoughts, opinions, judgments. I was thinking the other day of like, when I was studying playwriting years ago at Southern Methodist University, they invited Ingmar Bergman, the great mm -hmm. Swedish filmmaker over there. And I was one of the people chosen to uh, uh, sit in on one of the classes he was going to teach about uh, the artistic process. And he was a one, I mean, I was just blown away by his presence. He was a great role model for this, what I would call innocent perception. And it really came through because Eckhart says what love is, is this flow of attention uncontaminated by thought, emotion, expectation, judgment. When you have a lot of history with a person, all of this involuntary stuff comes on. Ah, she's just talking about this or she means that. And it kind of gets in the way of just apprehending or perceiving the person in the simplicity of the way they're being. So it's the voice in the head, constant judgment, not being with that person really. And the other thing too is the judgment is there's always the link between feeling and thought, feeling and thought. And that's why so much of the work being present is to find a portal of the now by taking your attention into the body or the breath so that there's a, a severing of this connection between feeling and perception. The other thing that's really important is the uh, emotion is what wrecks relationship, mismanaged emotion, okay? Because with emotion comes an action tendency. And so if you're not alert, let's say your partner says or doesn't do something that triggers in you, first there's an evaluation. Oh, she shouldn't say that or that's hurtful. Then the body quickly reacts, mm -hmm. usually with a with with some type of discomfort and pain. And then part of emotion is an action tendency. What comes with every emotion is a quick action tendency to say something, do something, move away, uh, speak. And so when you're accessing the frequency of presence, you're able to, and I think they have something like one one hundredth of a second between the emotion hits the brain and the ability to, to act on it or speak out of that emotion. If you have the frequency of presence, you can really intercept and stop the action tendency of the emotion. So if your partner says something that makes you angry, if you're present, you can intercept the action tendency of the emotion 
And that is very critical because if people cannot, if couples, when couples are able to not speak out of the hurt feeling and the anger, that prevents a lot of damage from occurring. So reciprocity, one person gets angry and the other person gets angry back. When there's this negative affect reciprocity, one person being angry and crappy and irritable and the other one back, that creates a lot of damage, destroys the safe union, and it's uh, difficult to repair. So the frequency of presence can intercept uh, a lot of that you know, hurt and anger and aggression, they go together. So, but if you're alert and you can recognize, oh my God, my body's surging with this urge to stand up or, 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 or argue, um, and you can quiet that urge, then you're, you're, you're able to create and sustain a much safer relationship. Oftentimes, uh, one reverts back to childhood stuckness also, doesn't it? It's like, it's like uh, I feel a wound from the past that's reignited now. And rather than be present, I'm back there. Yeah. And so the way I look at developmental psychology, I think all the past, it lives in the present. Mm. And Tull says that um, until you actually sit with the energy of, of your conditioning, um, that, that of those feelings and sit with it and feel it from within, um, it keeps recurring. So in the next episode, we talk about emotion sobriety. That's the practice to deal with that past emotional pain as it comes up to transmute it and dissolve it. So that when it comes up, it's not as intense. This is where perhaps inner child work could be very helpful though, that, that you're, you're providing the nurturing to the kid uh, rather than expecting the other person to be aware that at the moment you're six years old (laughs) (laughs) and and be very sensitive to that. Personally, I don't like um, saying you're being six years old. Look, our brain stores emotional memories based on previous experience. Uh Most of the patterns are laid down, they say, before the ages of seven in interpersonal uh, interactions. I don't like to think about you being a kid. What's happened is you've had experience and those patterns still live on in you as habitual ways of being. And um, I'd much rather to look at it rather than saying you're a kid, just that you're in a vulnerable state where there's fear and hurt that you've experienced before, but it's now present. Uh, you can be aware of it. And the other thing too, and I made this mistake before because I like to think and analyze everything. And there's a place for that, for understanding. But a lot of these people who talk about transforming past trauma into uh, peace and, and a different way of being focus on feeling the feeling in the body, not so much with thinking about it. And so in my own relationships and with couples, I encourage couples when you're interacting with, with, with your partner, be on the alert for a sudden surge of emotion in your body. Mm. And because you'll sense if someone is rejecting you or saying something critical, the body will respond very quickly and the heart rate will go up, the attention in the jaws perhaps. So feel that feeling and not turn it into thinking as much. And that gives you a better idea to calm yourself, soothe yourself so that emotion doesn't take you over and make you uh, act like a jerk. 
So looking at relationships, uh, um, oftentimes they start off on a, on a high, uh, but over, over time they can quickly sour. So a couple of uh, passages here from uh, Eckhart. They may seem perfect for a while, such as when you are in love, but invariably that apparent perfection gets disrupted as arguments, conflicts, dissatisfaction and emotional or even physical violence occur with increasing frequency. Love can turn into savage attack, feelings of hostility, to complete withdrawal of affection at the flick of a switch. And this is considered normal. It's scary, but it's true, huh? Tell us, tell us about that. Well, it's really true. And uh, so, the romance phase of a relationship is the person satisfying your needs. And there's a lot of uh, joy, there's euphoria, someone sees me, someone understands me, there's this affection, there's this sexual chemistry, it's all pleasure. Uh, but eventually uh, the part reaches a point where relationship will reach a point where the partner starts behaving in ways that don't feel good and usually activate what they call the attachment alarm system. When someone behaves in ways that uh, we see as non-loving or aren't meeting our nets, uh, the attachment alarm system sends out a signal that, wow, this is very threatening, it, it, it hurts. And from that feeling of threat, people can get very aggressive or very cold. And that's what happens. So. Um, I always tell people, uh, you don't know what you have in a relationship until you've had that first uh, emotionally charged sense of disappointment and conflict, because then you know who, you who, you're, who you're dealing with there. Does that person have the resources to restrain their emotions, understand their emotions, communicate about their emotions, soothe their emotions? Um, uh, and then you can readjust and go from that romantic phase to more of a realistic, uh, more uh, sagacious type of bond. But yeah, so the minute someone sends a signal to our brain that we perceive as threatening, becomes very difficult because we get angry or cold. And then all the thought stuff comes in where you start judging the person and making the other person wrong. And then you're really on a on a slippery slope. I, I didn't know how to argue. Uh, when, when my wife and I started our relationship many, many years ago, when the conflict stuff first came up, my first response is run. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And, and she sat me down and said, no, you have to stay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a new pattern. You know, to stay and face and feel and not escape. Yeah. Well, so what happens is in attachment wounds, we have basically two ways of coping with that. Run, which is flee, yeah. um, or pursue your partner kind of aggressively. And so those are the two kind of maladaptive attachment reactions to feeling threatened or feeling disappointed in your partner. Uh, 
people who have good relationship histories, what they call secure attachment, who had people early on who can say, all right, I know you're upset. Let, let, let's calm down. Let's talk about this. Uh, are more able to uh, stay in the game and have a nice balance between withdrawal and pursuing. And again, establishing a safe, calm, peaceful, interpersonal climate is, is the name of the game. And anything that uh, threatens that or destroys that is really bad, very difficult for us. Mm -hmm. So knowing what your attachment strategy is, with, uh, when conflict comes up, people will either run away, withdraw, withhold, um, and so others will pursue and pursue, uh, start nagging, what's, what's wrong with you, uh, da, 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 start complaining about the other person. And both of those tend to be ineffective. So uh, how to handle that conflict, of course, in all the literature is, is key to having a, a successful Relationship. And, and, and again, this is this is where the watchfulness is so important. Yeah. And to catch it upstream before it uh, develops into a torrent. Yeah. It is. It's all about watchfulness, being aware of what's going on. So why? So you can manage it, soothe it, yeah. and uh, transmute it into something else. Because the natural tendency is going to be human beings get aggressive when they're hurt. It's just what humans do. They get aggressive or they check out. That's what they want to do, the flight or flight. Mm -hmm. So managing those responses are uh, absolutely necessary. And unless you're awake and present, so you could catch yourself in the act. Here I am, I'm hurt, but I'm clamming up. I'm not talking, I'm staying away. If you can't catch yourself in the act of doing that, then you're just gonna keep repeating it. And then your partner's gonna evaluate that in a way that doesn't make them feel good. And it's just gonna uh, intensify the disconnection. Yeah, the next quote may bring us uh, to more the heart of the problem. He says, relationships do not cause pain and unhappiness. They bring out the pain and unhappiness that is already in you. We use relationships or somebody to cover up our pain. Well, that's so true. I mean, it's true. Now, if we were in a state where we had like the promises forecast for us. We have an unshakable peace within. We have a new freedom and a new happiness. We're rooted in the peace of God. If you have that, my God, you're going to be a very invulnerable to a lot of the emotional triggers that happen in intimate relationship. Or you're going to find out that you don't have that. Well, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so what happens is, and Tull has a quote, he says, if you can't be peaceful and happy and at ease when you're by yourself, you're sure as hell not going to be able to feel that in the fire of human relationships. And yeah. that's true. Um, what happens, I think, is that so we have we fall in love, we have the euphoria, um, I, I'm happy, I'm great, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm bursting with love. And then the partner disappoints us in some way, the pain comes back. And rather than owning the fact that our level of development is such that we're not inwardly peaceful and unconditionally loving, we hold the other person accountable and basically want to blame them for our own unhappiness. 
and we have a story about them and how they did this and how they, you know, and rather than taking responsibility that I myself have not been able to access this peace, this unconditional love, the serenity within. And that's why they talk about relationship, uh, not as an end in itself, but as a means to developing this intimate contact with our higher power, the presence of God, the peace of God. And um, uh, so it's a, it's a tough gig because when we're around loved ones, we want to take it easy. We don't want to work so hard. We like to relax. But here what the spiritual teaching is, no, when you're around your partner, you need to be alert and awake and watchful. And um, I know couples who reach a point where they both uh, uh, become present enough so that there is more of a, a, an ease and a more of a co-created serenity. Um, but we're never invulnerable because uh, again, our brains respond very quickly to any sign that the partner is uh, abandoning, threatening, rejecting, criticizing us. And there's been a lot of research uh, that it's facial expressions and tone of voice that trigger emotional reactions more than words or behavior. Uh, just so if your partner just kind of like looks away when you're saying something's uh, serious, um, your brain is going to pick up on that, feel threatened by it. And so unless you're awake and, and again, watch that body's reaction. One of my favorite mm. books is your body doesn't lie. So um, encourage couples and in my own practice, watch that body. You'll feel some sensation. You'll feel the quickened heartbeat. You'll feel the frown in the face. You'll feel the tension go up. Feel that body. And that's Tali's thing for emotional uh, uh, work is feel that body from within, especially in the, when you're around other people. And again, the reason we do that is again, because if the emotion takes us over, which means it's going to control what we say, how we say it, what we do, then we're really just, you're going to screw up your relationships because you're acting out of aggression, hurt, and fear, and that's never effective. Mm. Uh, the set of quotes uh, begin moving us now towards the solution. And uh, Eckhart writes, for love to flourish, the light of your presence needs to be strong enough so that you no longer get taken over by the thinker or emotional pain body and mistake them for who you are. That's it. That's what I was just talking yeah. about. Now, and I've noticed it in myself and my relationships. It's we have to have some humility in this. You know, I don't, you know, there aren't too many masters at this stuff. So we're all little students in training trying to learn day by day, episode by episode, emotion by emotion. But we have to have the aim uh, of, of trying to be awake when these, when these occur. Um, but when that emotion gets intense, again, the you're going to want to defend. You're going to want to attack. You're going to want to just um, aggress or go cold and distance, withdraw or attack, withdraw or attack. And if this takes you over, you're basically out of control. We're talking about involuntary compulsive thinking and speaking and doing. It's very automatic. It's very lower centers. It's very animalistic and it's instinctual and it's primitive. And mm. uh, it, 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 it it's aggression, you know. Uh, 
so it gets into attack and defend and it, it, it it's a form of violence usually yeah. so the uh and we're all capable of it so we all have emotional pain bodies which means that we have past pain in us um our partner uh says things that triggers some old pain in us. For example, with me, one of mine is feeling really bad about myself. Okay, so my partner could say something that could trigger that shame energy where I'm like that. So um, if I'm not alert, I can quickly, easily get into like attacking her for making me feel this way rather than sit with the feeling itself. Mm -hmm. And then that, that, that's a much more skillful way uh, of dealing with it. Um, so what he's saying is it's very important that we know who we are. This, that we have a good, solid sense of self. Exactly. Uh, when I work with couples, I talk about raw spots. Couples who have really good relationships know that, um, know what types of thing are going to make their partner sad or happy or ashamed that's going to cause them to suffer mm -hmm. it's just like um, with my dog if i rub her uh on, on the belly near her left leg she's going to bite for some reason she just just she doesn't like it <clears throat> that's a raw spot with her and we're like that too we have raw spots and someone rubs that raw spot um we're going to dysregulate feel some painful emotion uh either withdraw or attack and so uh, knowing ourselves and knowing your partner is understanding what their vulnerabilities are. So you can be very careful not to aggravate that. And so that is a wonderful uh, way of loving someone, understanding their vulnerabilities, being mindful enough so that you uh, don't say and do things that trigger that past pain in the person. And that's a wonderful way of being. And yet at the same time, unless you're aware of these raw spots yourself and can communicate uh, them to your partner, you're not gonna have a, a, a good chance of having that mutual, mutual understanding of each other's vulnerabilities. Now, mm -hmm. Tal would say that you're not really responsible for the other person's vulnerabilities. I disagree with that. Um, I think that um, in intimacy, it really does help to know uh, what your own vulnerabilities are, what's going to make you feel shame, what's going to make you feel unhappy, what's going to make you feel angry, what's going to make you feel unloved. Having that awareness is really good because then you can be more skillful when you're with your partner. So much about so much yeah. about love, I think, is about gentleness. Yeah. And um, uh, if you don't know that uh, a certain behavior or a certain look or a certain way of expressing yourself is going to cause your partner a lot of suffering, um, you're really in bad shape because you're unwittingly causing your partner to suffer. And a lot of people, especially men, have difficulty in expressing that vulnerability uh, when it occurs. So, yeah. An interesting thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting sober. This is 50 years ago or so. And I, I, I'm with my wife is before we're even married. Uh, she's in Al-Anon. But she tells me 
she does not drink. And, uh, and I really appreciate that. And I kind of bring this up because uh, I, I know a lot of people uh, who are in recovery. Say, well, whether my wife or husband drinks or not doesn't have a damn thing to do with me. It's up to me. It's my thing. Well, I got to tell you, I really appreciated that that's how she comes about it. Uh, and, and she said, well, there's, there's something a little bit hostile, you know, in, in drinking when I'm living with an alcoholic. You know, um, I can't tell you how much I appreciated that. And had she not, and you chalk this up to my own weakness, I don't know that I'd have 50 years sober today. Mm. I don't know it. I mean, it's kind of like living with a smoker. You know, I get there are such things as social smokers. They're, they're damn few and far between. But there are some people who are like that, you know. And But if you're married to someone with lung cancer, you know, <laughs> Are you going to be smoking? You know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, might get some get some correspondence on that, but um, it's just my experience. Yeah, and maybe it fits in with what you're saying to be sensitive to the to the other person in the relationship. Yeah, it's, uh, it's compassion is so much uh, uh, a part, I think, of successful intimate relationship. If you're not aware of the suffering that you're going through and the suffering that the relationship is causing your partner, intimacy tends to uh, think become degraded. Mm. And um, so being awake and being able to see and witness, um, wow, that really hurt me. Sometimes I work with couples and I'll see one spouse saying something that you could tell is just crushing the soul of the other and the person be totally unaware that this person is reacting with an intense degree of pain and they don't even see it. It doesn't even register. And uh, people love to be connected with someone who can see them and feel what they're feeling. Feeling felt is the coin of the realm, I think, in intimate relationship. Um, oh, honey, you're sad. I feel your sadness. And you can come in and show a caring response. A lot of people aren't really good at what they call connective emotions, caring emotions, nurturing emotions, uh, because it really requires putting the focus on the other rather than oneself. And uh, that's very problematic for relationships because we're all going to suffer. We're all going to suffer in relationships intentionally, unintentionally at the hands of our beloved. And so unless we can be awake enough to notice, oh, my God, honey, what I said hurt your feelings. Uh, I didn't mean that. Um, you know, uh, anything I can do to make you feel better, I'm here for you. Some message like that. We need to feel that. What is love? It's connection. It's a feeling of interconnectedness. Uh, I think one of the most important things in a relationship is sending messages of validation. I see what you're feeling. I feel what you're feeling. It makes sense to me what you're feeling. And I care about what you're experiencing. And uh, Eckhart the would say this that, is the therapeutic technique of kind of feeding back. Uh, in a positive way, I hear you saying, yeah. you know, uh, that the person gets heard yeah. where they are. It, it, it's not a technique. It's a way of loving. Uh, it's, you know, it could be, I teach a lot of relationship skills. I'm kind of a skill-based therapist. So um, 
you know, learning, you know, how to do that is important, but really feeling it yeah. is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but again, but that's he, why I can, even fake it till you make it. Yeah, <laughs> in the beginning uh, is okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we appreciate it. Yeah, you could say, I'm sorry, I hurt you, and that had me nothing. Or you can say that, and it means everything. So yeah. uh, it's the, I guess it's more the, the content than the form. Uh, in this next quote, I hear Eckhart telling us, uh, relationships are important, but maybe not for the purpose the ego thinks. He says, for presence to become deeply rooted it must be tested in the fire of relationships. Okay, and this is basically his vision. His vision is uh, relationships aren't here to make are, aren't here to make you happy. They're here to make you enlightened. They're here to teach you that you need more than anything else in relationships. Contact with your higher power. Yeah, to make this worse and that you practice you do all this present practice in relationships to develop and deepen your awareness of your contact with this loving presence which we call our higher power and um, to be deeply or more deeply rooted in that conscious contact um, is what he would say the inner purpose of relationship and how wonderful you know i'm still a romantic so i have difficulty because i want so much from the other but experience it bears it out it has to come within love is a state of being that's within ourselves it can't come from without and as much as we need other people to nurture us and see us and validate us at the end of the day the kingdom of heaven is within and we have to mm -hmm. exit ourselves and um when you have two people in a relationship who are doing that with humility and purpose um you know, you really can have what I call a heavenly marriage, a spiritual marriage, because the transcendent, the non-personal self stuff um, starts becoming the dominant aspect of energy in the relationship. Yeah, but it's the heaven in me and the heaven in her that are going to meet. And if it is, you need to give me heaven. Excellent. And if you don't, you're yeah. going to experience hell. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it becomes, that was one of my core features in my development thing. I had, uh, I was never a sex addict. I just, uh, I never found sex without love. I found it repulsive personally, but I was a love addict. I mean, I, I just really bought the thing that, you know, the, you know, I would find my Beatrice and she would be my <laughs> uh, uh, salvation. And I projected all my gold shadow onto the feminine and uh, it didn't work, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was very alluring. And uh, so to find that, yes, each of us has to find that 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 great reality or that peace, or at least be on the way uh, to to moving into that interior castle. You know, all bets are off. You know, there are what they call apparent marriages where people are apparently they're civil, they're moral, they're good. But to have a spiritual marriage, you really have to have that that what I call the transcendent, the divine coming in. Uh, and also true, while it's also true that we're miniature. Uh, 
there's a society, a miniature society of heaven in us waiting to reborn. There's also a lot of little miniature hells in each and one of us. You know? mm -hmm. A lot of selfishness, a lot of uh, pride and stuff like that. So uh, it's, uh, so I'm a big, big, big guy on humility and compassion uh, as being kind of necessary ground of having a good relationship. I'm humble and vulnerable and flawed. You're humble, you're vulnerable, you're flawed. Compassion for each other, compassion for, for this thing. And yet we aim high to bring this presence of God in. in, in. That's why, you know, the prayer, couples who pray and meditate together in earnest uh, uh, really have a leg up on this thing. Mm. It's not necessary, but research does show that couples who do pray and meditate together have a lot more successful, deep relationships. So... It's uh, there's actually a therapy that I really like, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is based upon mindfulness uh, practices for both couples. It's very helpful because it activates that compassion, that acceptance, taking responsibility for your own pain, etc. Uh, that that leads us into, the, into beautifully into the next quote, and this one could go, come straight out of the big book, eh, Doctor Paul? Acceptance is the key to all our problems. Eckhart says, um, it's the key to our relationship problems as well. He, he writes this, the greatest catalyst for change in a relationship is complete acceptance of your partner as he or she is without needing to judge or change them in any way. Then he goes on to say, listening is the greatest thing you can do for your partner. Listening gives the other space to be yeah beautiful yeah so this catalyst for change forcing your partner to change some i'm you know making requests is, is helpful it's a, it's a good skill honey i would like it if you do this with couples i say to them look imagine your spouse is a breed of dog okay and i love reading about different breeds of dogs so you have a breed of dog, uh, needs a lot of exercise, likes a lot of affection, likes to be covered in dark when it sleeps, uh, can get very aggressive at times. Um, and so accepting the way a person naturally is, is rather than wanting to like change it. Why can't you be more lighthearted when you're married to someone who has a temperament that's kind of melancholy? Uh, that doesn't work. Um, because I wanted we, a basset hound, but I married an Afghan. Right, exactly. And then you <laughs> okay. said you're hating the other person or complaining <laughs> that you know you got a you know you're a basset hound. You know, uh, <laughs> so um, so yeah. But the acceptance, I think, what he's talking about is like if you're really present and you're allowing the other to be um, kind of perceptually and experientially. Uh, we react very, I think, subconsciously to how people uh, are, are communicating or just being with us. And when you're just sitting there and allowing the person to be, it really allows that other person to relax and feel safety. And all the relationship literature says that the, the, the thing that's most needed in relationship is this, this, this profound sense that it's safe to be with this person. It's safe to be with the person. I can be just as I am and it's safe. 
safe. Um, and so and she's becoming and I'm becoming. Right. You don't have to be, but on the way to. Yeah. And I love the term loving acceptance, a loving acceptance. Um, I like Charles Dickens because in his characters, he's, um, he's not known as a great character writer, but I love his character because all of his characters have, in one scene, they'll be showing real monstrous, horrible traits of personality or character. And then a few chapters later, the same person will be in a situation where the person is just behaving with just kindness and uh, all these wonderful qualities. And I think that's true for most of us. We're a mixed bag. We have under certain circumstances, we could be very selfish, ruthless, uh, aggressive, whatever. And on the other hand, we all have a center of good. And when you do acceptance, you can be less shocked by the fact that people are multifaceted, that they can go down the scale of development at times mm -hmm. and their shadow stuff could grab them at times. And you can accept that and allow them to be and still continue with that, 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 that loving acceptance of the totality of the person. So a lot of times we will demand perfection and, and, and a lot of uh, superhuman ways of being from our partner. And so acceptance, mm -hmm. I think, uh, gets back to that thing of, of humility, uh, knowing that I have flaws, my wife has flaws, we have flaws, we're suffering from them. Together, we're working on bringing the presence of God into our relationship to accept transform and change what we can um and the serenity prayer is very uh, apropos for marriages accept the things you cannot change and change the things you can so in relationships it's very important to know things that it, i love working with older couples who've been around along each other and still love each other and they have this ability to just very lovingly oh yeah he's a cranky yeah so in older couples who have that sweet, positive uh, a bond, it, it's very beautiful to see. You know, he's just an ornery old Gus, eh, eh, you know, eh, and uh, that's just the way he is. And there's no contempt. There's no, it's just kind of a lovingly, oh, there he is. And it's, it, there's a way of loving, you can lovingly accept the limitations of another person rather than make it like, a, you know, uh, story of deprivation or, or, or attack on the other person's character. Um, and, so. and there's also a skill to do that with yourself. Yes. Yeah. When you see yes. that coming up to forgive yourself, to be patient with yourself. It's so true. It's, yeah. it's, it is. And, uh, uh, Eckert says in one passage, she says, um, uh, when you reach the point where you notice stuff, uh, in yourself and you can just smile at it yeah. rather than make a big drama about it you know yeah. you're on your way there I am being a blah 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 right yeah that's good and again it, it, it's about this notion of not having these things take you over and determine how you mm. treat yourself and how you treat others let me do the final quote because it's a beauty um, 
if you continue to pursue the goal of salvation through a relationship, you will be disillusioned again and again. But if you accept that the relationship is here to make you conscious instead of happy, then the relationship will offer you salvation and you will be aligning yourself with the higher consciousness that wants to be born into this world. There it is. Boom. Yeah. <clears throat> Meditate on that one, guys. We're going to put yeah. the put all of these quotes in the show notes, but really pay attention to that one. It's it's beautiful and it's uh, it's 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 pretty deep. Well, you look at the ego. The ego, the separated self, unenlightened self, the unspiritual self, is you know an idolater. It seeks salvation in things outside itself, which will not activate the full development of our human capabilities to be spiritual, loving, kind, awake, and all that stuff. So seeking uh, the goal of salvation through success, through relationships, through fame, through accomplishment, through recognition, they're all things that ultimately aren't going to satisfy. They could satisfy the ego to some extent, but the ego is a, it's a very fickle, it. very fickle. And it's always going to be, it's, it, it's always uh, <clears throat> insecure at some level because it knows it's a false sense of security. Right. Um, but it goes again to, and it's difficult. It's difficult for me to not seek salvation through a relationship because, you know, the need for to be loved and seen and validated and comfort and uh, be looked at with positive attention. Those are legitimate needs and humans need them. Mammals need them. Uh, yet at the same time, they're not going to get us into that interior castle or really feel the presence of God, the presence of our higher power, that unshakable peace within. It's kind of a, well, I don't want to make it sound like a sad state of affairs. It's just the way it is. <laughs> you know, the mystics, uh, uh, when I study the mystics and their writings and their favorite scriptures, they're really a song of songs. Mm -hmm. It's the intimacy. Yeah. It's the intimacy of that relationship with God that, that is the, maybe the only thing that really satisfies the soul. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not there yet, but I know that to feel like some people have experienced this intimate, all-embracing love in connection with the divine, coming forth from the divine, that's the true all. That's the true all. And then what comes through that, I think, you know, it's interesting in the commandment. First, you seek you know, love your God your, with all your heart, then love your neighbor. I think there's some wisdom in that, that once we're able to, uh, through our spiritual work, to feel that, that, that love of the divine, then what can come through that is just a higher loving vibrational frequency towards others, which is unconditional because that's what the divine love is unconditional so um that's the way it works you know and so what do we do with the relationships they're going to teach us suffering they're going to teach us uh 
the necessity of transforming that suffering through contact with the transcendent, using that compassionate presence and love and wisdom to soothe our own suffering so that we really can allow that divine love to flow out into our relationships, humbly, of course. <laughs> when I uh, wanted to run in the early days of uh, our, my relationship with my wife, uh, uh, a sponsor said some uh, very helpful uh, words to me. He said, Bill, you may as well work it out with her because mm. you're just going to have to work it out with the next one. And you're already halfway down the road. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It was true. <laughs> the same stuff's going to keep coming up with a different keep coming up. And uh, keeps coming up until you go through it. Yeah. Go through it. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Bruce, this has been wonderful once again. And so where are we going to go next time? What's what's the next episode is on? Well, a lot of people in fellowship talk about they're struggling with emotional sobriety. Mm. Uh, and what I think the most difficult teaching he talks about is the notion of the emotional pain body, how past emotional pain lives in us. And unless we bring the power of now to bear on that past emotional pain as it pops up, especially in relationships, uh, if we can't sit with it in a specific way, be present to it, it it's going to keep returning and returning again, perhaps even with more intensity. So uh, how to dissolve the past emotional pain in the present is uh, the topic. Sounds Dissolving great. the emotional pain body. Okay, wonderful. I'll look forward to it. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Bruce, for, uh, once again, for, uh, for sharing with us. It was great. And I thank you guys for listening. I, I hope it was, uh, uh, really helpful. And, um, if it was, uh, turn on some of your friends, uh, uh, to these podcasts or, or YouTube channel and, uh, help us carry the message out there. Uh, I, 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 I try to get guests who, uh, really have something to say to those of us who are in recovery and uh, needing to grow along spiritual lines that uh, uh, we can go a little deeper with this thing. So thank you, Dr. Bruce. Thank you guys for listening uh, and keep coming back. Mm -hmm.